0: This is Robert Ross. Just to make you aware that this chat with the very lovely Peter Egan was recorded in 2016 when we were marking Shakespeare 400 and before Peter filmed his new hit sitcom, Hold the Sunset. If you were lucky enough to have been in the audience, you will have seen a clip from ever decreasing circles. And it's this comedy classic that we discuss first. Enjoy the interview. Everyone's a fruit and a nut. Please welcome the smoothest man in all sitcom land, Mr. Peter Egan. (laughs)
1: I Haven't changed a bit. <laughs> <laughs> take a Hello seat, everyone. Peter. Oh, I, excuse me, I brought my own beer. He's got Sunday. a
0: beer, you see. It's out of water. What's going on to my reputation here? Anyway, never mind. Peter, thank you for coming on this Sunday afternoon. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, and that clip must
1: uh, take you back and bring back wonderful memories. What it does, yes, it was the most wonderful series to do, um, and it's become a bit of uh, a, a, of a kind of classic, I suppose, really. Um, deeply sad that poor old Richard has gone. He was a great, great friend. And in fact, um, it was very, uh, they found the casting the part of Paul very difficult. And in fact, it was Richard's wife, Annie Briers, um, who, uh, who cast me in it because um, I was in New York and um, they, were, they, they just couldn't find anyone to do it. There was about two weeks to go for filming. My agent rang me and said, there's a series come up and, um, a comedy series, i always wanted to do a comedy series, and, um, and I said, uh, 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 but they said, they haven't got time to send you the scripts, because in those days, it was in the early 80s, uh, they had to send it by mail, and um, they said, by the time we get, you get it, you'll be coming back, and they need to start the, the following week, so I said, well, who's in the series? And they said, Richard Bryers and Penny Wilton. So I said, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And the scripts arrived, and, of course, they were fantastic. Well, they
1: were terrific. But I didn't think much of Paul as a part, to any of the truth. I mean, I thought that Paul was a bit of a cipher. And, um, and I, th- I think he was the least well-written part in the series. And, in fact, when we finished the series in 1989, God, um, when we finished it, we had a party afterwards, and, and, and Richard said, I'd like to give Peter the award for making... The maximum out of the minimum with a part, which I thought was really nice. Um, but I mean, because Paul as a character was written, if he'd been if he'd been played in a sort of particular way, he could have been very kind of um, uh, cool and 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 uh, unpleasant, I think. Um, and what made the part work for me was um, working with someone I admired and liked so much, Richard. Um, and I knew from about the third day of filming, that I was gonna have have difficulty getting through the series um, because he made me laugh so much in the scenes that we were doing. So uh, uh, a lot of the time they'd have to stop filming because I was corpsing. And uh, then I suddenly thought, well, why shouldn't Paul find um, the, uh, the character of Martin funny Anyway, so I introduced that into the into the series, and uh, so and that what was very good about that was that it informed Paul as a character liking Martin rather than trying to ridicule him.
0: That's the secret to it, isn't it? I mean, you yeah. you, you do generally
1: like him, and and you Absolutely. find him uh, endearingly sort of um, ridiculous, don't you? Yes, yeah. yeah. yeah, so, and, and as I said, it was something I had to do because. In the studios, um, we had to stop recording as well because um, he made me laugh so much, and I, <laughs> I just would start laughing, and they'd say "cats," and, um, and we'd have to start again. And then I said, "Well, just leave the laugh in, because you know I'm going to be doing it in the next scene anyway." So. Um. And had you worked with Richard before that? I had, yeah, I had. Yeah, um, uh, I mean, I admired him for years, and um, both on screen and, and on stage. Um, but we were, we were asked to do um, George Bernard Shaw's play Arms and the Man together, um, which we did in, uh, up the road in the Lyric Shaftesbury Avenue. And I played Sergius, and he played Bluntschli. And um, so that was the first time I with That was 1978, 79, I think. And um, w- what was wonderful is I was, I was rather um, apprehensive about working with him because he was such a famous Comedian, you know, and comedians can be very protective of their territory. And uh, from the first read-through, he laughed at something I said as in character, and he and I thought, oh, that's very generous, you know. Um, and then when we started rehearsing the play, he would stay and watch scenes he wasn't in, and um, if I did something funny, Serge is quite an absurd character. And um, if I did something funny, he laughed, and uh, and I thought that's that's amazing, really. It's one one it's generous, but it was also incredibly encouraging for me as well. So we had a great time. We worked up there for six months. Um, in fact, it was during the time if you all remember the bomb scares, remember having lots of bomb scares in London around that time, and we were we were actually we stopped three times in, in in a period of a month. And I remember vividly one occasion, at the lyric, the stage level is almost eye level to the. Royal Circle. And um, we, Richard and I had this long scene together in the second act, and um, we got halfway through it. And, and we, out of the corner of each of his, his and my eye, I, 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 we, we could hear seats going up, flapping up, like that, and line by line, the audience going out. And after about five minutes of playing the scene while it was happening, Richard turned to the audience and said, it's not that bad, is it? <laughs> but in fact, what had happened was that um, we, uh, they'd had a, a bomb scare. And so I marched up the Sharsby uh, Avenue in my full... Um, uh, Hussar's outfit. So, which was, uh, I got a few laughs as well.
0: <laughs> but I mean, he was, he was a, a comedy actor, really, rather than a comedian, wasn't he? And I suppose he saw totally, what, was, um, what, was, yeah. what was good for the whole production, Absolutely. That his, his, yeah. his talent. Yeah?
1: I used to call him uh, a, a, a comedy polyfiller, uh, because every time there was a hole or a crack in the performance, he'd fill it in with something wonderful. And I remember at one Point. I, I was upstage with him while two people were down the stage playing a scene. He thought rather slowly. And in a pause, uh, he said, Get on with it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a wonderful note to get somebody, especially if they know what they're doing.
0: Uh, we'll go back to talking about Ever the Crease and Circles. And, uh, but you, after that show came to an end, you directed a production of Uncle Vanya, mm. didn't you? With Richard Bryers. Yeah, that was a few
1: years it. later. I mean, I, 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 I'd done some directing before. I, I started directing... Yes, around the time that um, that we did um, Arms and the Man, I, I, I got a bit bored with my acting, you know, I sort of thought, oh, God mm-hmm. almighty, not this again. And um, so, so I thought I might become a director. Mm-hmm. And uh, I directed the first play in the lyric uh, Hammersmith when it reopened in 19, early 70s. Um, a play by Nick Dark called Landmarks. It was a wonderful play, and he he was a wonderful writer. If you remember Nick Dark, he was a Cornish writer, and he was very, quite mysterious as a writer. Um, anyway, uh, Uncle Vanya happened some 15 years later, um, in the early 90s, I think it was, yeah. And Ken Branagh was directing it, um, and in fact... It's just sorry to waffle around here if I can just fill you in as a background um, to this. Um, I, uh, when we worked together on Arms of the Man, I said to Richard, you know, you'd be brilliant as Uncle Vanya. Because, for me, he had all the perfect qualities, humour and, um, and, and uh, sensitivity and, and sadness. Um, and, um, and I always thought he would be a perfect Uncle Vanya. So, 15 years later, he rings me up and he says, um, Ken Branners asked me to do Uncle Vanya, and I said, wonderful, you must do it. And he said, that, again, like Paul, they couldn't cast Astroff. So they say, he said, do you, do you fancy playing Astroff? And I said, uh, uh, who, with you, yes, I'd love to do Astroff, Yeah. So I was, again, cast by accident in that. So, um, and then before we started rehearsing, um, Kenneth Branagh, who was directing his first film, Dead Again, um, was told by the producers in Hollywood that if he, if he didn't get his percentage ratings higher for the previews, they wouldn't give him the completion money for the film. So he had to remain available to them for the whole rehearsal period of Uncle Vanya, which we were about to start. So um, he, he, he then came to me, Ken, Sir Ken as he is now, and said, um, uh, uh, Peter, uh, uh, having said, do you fancy, would you play So I said, yes. He, he said, do you fancy directing the play? I said, I can't direct a play, I'm playing Sergius. How can I direct a play? He said, well, Laurence Olivier did. <laughs> so, no oh, pressure no. there. <laughs> well, hey, okay. So I very stupidly accepted to, to direct. I say stupidly because you can't do both. You can if you're Laurence Olivier, and you can in that period of time where there was a different um, expectation or a different kind of... There was less democracy in theatre, in acting in those days. You You've kind of filled spaces with great, powerful figures like in his Uncle Vanya, Michael Redgrave, and um, uh, John Plowright himself as Sergius, um, Max Adrian, and these great character actors carved their own territory on the stage, and you didn't step over it. Mm By the time I was directing it, it was a very democratic world in which um, we would always spend hours either at Stratford or the National. You could spend hours discussing a play and generally the person who was the doorman had more to say about the play than the person who was playing Hamlet, you know. Yeah. So, um, so it, it, the whole chemistry of directing had changed by then, if you see what I mean. Sorry if I'm waffling did, did a bit. Your, it's all making sense, is it? And, did um, your performance suffer as a result then of the directing? It, made, it suffered in that I, um, I, I spent most of my time watching the cast rather than just playing my part. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, an actor has to be the best advocate for the character that he's playing. And so my advocacy for my character was less than my advocacy for the play. And so I think it suffer, I suffered from that point of view. And also because um, what I meant by a rather crude description of the system by directors and actors pre uh, the more democratic system that happened, kicked off mainly in the late middle 50s by John Osborne and Look Back in Anger, and taking the politeness out of theater, and then theater went through a huge change between 1956 and the late 70s, and then in the 70s it became more director's theater. Um, So uh, there was a huge chemical change that happened um, in terms of how you work and how you uh, Relate to the people you are working with on stage, um, and so it, it became the director's role became like a conductor with an orchestra, much more, much more specifically important because. I think up until the, to the, at the beginning of the 20th century, there weren't any directors in the theatre. There were stage managers and the actor manager mm-hmm. said, "You stand there, and I'll stand here, and the audience is there. Don't ever cross that line." Uh-huh. You know, and he would always have his his face favoured by the audience. You know. And indeed, when I first started acting in 1966, that's 50 years ago now. I have 50 not out this year, which is good. Congratulations. Oh, I mean, I say not out, I got another month ago yet, but, um, So um, I, I was sort of on the cusp of the last actor managers. This is interesting. I is, bo- please, no, carry we on. Is I'm, this, um,
0: well, I'm fascinated uh, anyway. Uh, I don't care about uh, you. Uh, it's uh, good. I, can, <laughs> I went off on
1: a tangent here. <laughs> um, it. it, it, um, it, it Actor-managers became less powerful and companies and directors uh, like the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National Theatre, of course, although that was run by the great actor-manager Laurence Olivier, um, it it, it, it necessitated um, a democratic working on stage so that it became much, much more exciting as a play. The play became the thing rather than the star vehicle, as it were. So um, by the time I got to direct... um, Uncle Vanya. I, I, I realize profoundly that you can't do both. You, can't, you can if you're doing a stand-up, or if you're, maybe you can't do that, but um, you can't do it if you're directing a, a Chekhov. You can either, you, your job is to direct it and see the broad landscape of the play, yeah. or to be in it and see the huge interior I suppose area, directing right. a film and being in it is is obviously slightly easier because you
0: can sort of you, you can do it in uh, sort of piecemeal if you if you know. I think it. I think but, probably uh, directing
1: on film it, w- it w- would be possibly easier. Mm. I mean, but then I can't think of any. I mean, I know Clint Eastwood has directed yeah. some extraordinary films with himself playing. Olivia Olivia again did it. And on, Olivier yeah. again did it, but I don't think Olivier was a great film director. Mm. I mean, there are not. I think, in my opinion, anyway, there are not many great theatre directors who moved on to becoming great. Film directors. I don't think that Peter Hall or Olivier did, but I do think that Stephen Daldry mm-hmm. um, knows how to direct films. If you take Billy, for instance, and that other film after the Mrs. Dalloway film yeah. that he did, yeah. that was Stephen Daldry, wasn't Absolutely, it? Yeah. I yeah. mean, he he understands the language and the movement and the beats in a film. Uh, you've got to have that sense, like again, like a conductor, where you can take a score and move it in a really vigorous way visually forward. And uh, what happens, I think, with a lot of stage directors is that they they give picture frame um, yeah. images on a screen yeah. that are limiting to the story. They are
0: very theatrical, aren't they? But and when they you are, see yeah. Olivier's Henry V, it actually starts as a, yeah. a stage production and then goes into this yeah. wonderful, grandiose oh, form. Oh, I'd have to say that that's his best that's, film. That is his think. best film, yeah.
1: And as a matter of interest, if none of you have seen it, I mean, if, you, if you're interested in seeing what I believe to be perfect classical acting, which is something that doesn't exist anymore, But if you want to see perfect classical acting, um, watch um, Laurence Olivier doing the St. Crispian's Day speech in Henry V, it is magnificent. He has a tonal perfection, and he delivers it both like an aria, but he also delivers it in a, in, a, in a way that is acceptable in the spoke, in sense of the spoken word. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's perfect, I think, um, and something we don't do anymore.
0: It's beautiful. I know we're talking a day after Shakespeare 400, and I obviously know, his, his birthday uh, and yeah. death day. So, I mean, uh, and Shakespeare, obviously, is very important to you. You've, you've played a lot of it. Um, when, what was your first experience of, of My first experience
1: with... was in 1966 when I left Rado. I got, go. I, got a, I got a job um, at the Chichester Festival Theatre. In fact, my first job there was understudying um, uh, and playing small parts. My first part was at the cream face saloon in, um, in the, the play that's supposed to be unmentionable, um, which is uh, Macbeth. Um, I, I played Macbeth some years later. And As the theater falls down around it us. It falls around <laughs> and someone comes in and stabs me. you um, see my finger there, if you can see it, I can't bend it much. and I've got a finger. I, I, in the sword fight, when I played Macbeth, Macduff really tried to kill me and he, he hacked my hand with his cast iron broadsword. And, um, so I can't bend that finger. Anyway, um, that, that was some time later. Um, So, yeah, I play The clean faced Loon, which is, um, he comes on and says to Macbeth at the very end, when Macduff is coming to kill him, um, uh, what is it, something or other? (laughs) He says, um, the wood, my lord, and he says, what what wood? I can't remember, anyway. Three lines I had, and the the director, who was, again, one of those old-school directors, his name was Michael Bentall, and, um, when I first started rehearsing it, he said, um, Loon, Loon, are you hiding a very dodgy past? <laughs> because my accent was more, more sort of London and, um, uh, and all that, so uh, you know, that was said to me twice in my life as an actor, once when I went to RADA, and the second time, because I, I everyone thinks because I've played so many lords and, 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 and kings and princes and artists and poets that I'm, uh, that I'm a public schoolboy, and in fact, I'm absolutely the opposite. Um, I, I was brought up on a council estate in, in North London, Kilburn, it was unofficially called uh, the unofficial capital of Ireland, um, count, <laughs> County Kilburn, because it had a huge Irish population and my father was a Dubliner. And, and, uh, so, um, was there I, any theatre at all in your family? Uh, well, well, my father in the pub, yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> t- re- Regaining tales. Yeah, he was, I mean, he had a great singing voice, and yeah. um, he would, he, he would uh, sing. I could always tell what his humour would be like, whether he was angry or, 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 or happy, because... Um, when he came back from the pub, always very, very late at night, my mother having left a meal on top of the hob, where the peas had turned into bullets, and the, the meat was like a piece of leather, and uh, after five minutes, I'd hear it hitting a wall, <laughs> and uh, he'd then start singing. And if he started singing, a policeman's lot is not a happy one, a bit of Gilbert and Sullivan, he was in an okay mood, And if he sang a rebel song, an Irish rebel song, I'd think, oh dear, (laughs) things are gonna get worse tonight. Um, So that was the only theater, really. I suppose it's quite theatrical. And, um, uh, but I, as a child, um, I I lived in a a house with uh, my grandmother, my grandfather, five aunts, um, three uncles, a lodger, my cousin, my sister, my brother, myself. Um, So there were about 15 of us in a in a, in a house that had four rooms and no bathroom. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think I got picked up a lot of drama from that, uh, really. A...
0: And, and uh, were you going to theatre at a young age, or was it...? No, no, a, no, no, I did, no, I had
1: no interest in theatre at all. Um, I left school uh, when I was 15. I went to a school in Maida Vale. It was called St. George's Secondary Mod. In fact, it's um, the school in which, very sadly, that um, the very brave headmaster, Lawrence, got stabbed to death in the middle 90s, and um, that was my my alma mater, I suppose, is that what you call it, Uh, at my old school. And um, so uh, I had no interest in school at all. I hated it, in fact. And um, I used to play truant all the time. And in fact, in those days, people, you know, they didn't ring, Nobody you didn't have telephones, really. had carrier pigeons. <laughs> but, um, they didn't uh, ring up your mum or your dad and say, where's, where's Egan today? Uh, they, they just ignored it. So I once played truant for three months, and, uh, and nobody said anything. But what I did was, I think I saw the king and I 17 times at the Osoldo Kilburn oh, and um, I used to go and bunk into the cinema and sit there all afternoon So I must have had an appetite for performing without really knowing what it what it was Or just missing school basically. Uh, the <laughs> best thing was missing school. Yeah, I just I mean I had, I read two books um, in, At school one was um, Oliver Twist and the other was um, Treasure Island and that was the only two schools, so when I left I was totally almost illiterate really and um so I left school and uh, at 15, and uh, the, 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 the last words of, of, my, of the headmaster were to me, well, you might as well leave Egan, because leave you're going to end up in prison anyway. So... Tell I mean, I might well have done. But, um, so, um, so, I, so I left school. I got a job in a machine shop on a capstan making nuts and bolts. A, <clears throat> an, um, you have a huge piece of steel or something drilling into this hexagonal shape piece of thumb and it drills in and you put a thread in and, you, and then you cut it and it's, it's spinning like that all the time and it's fusel oil and you're covered from head to toe in fusel oil so you stink like a terrible old kind of, sort of oily drain really from which I did. Um, so anyway that was my first job and I thought I don't like this very much. <laughs> I'm not going to last at this. And I, anyway I got the sack after about three months and then I got a job, got a job in, a, in, a, um, in an auction rooms in Kilburn uh, as a porter. So I was the guy, you know what am saying, and Lot 33, and there I'd be holding it there, you know, as if it was a jug. And um, so I worked there for a period of time, and whilst I was there, I um, I saw a, a schoolmate of mine, um, <clears throat> a, a, a boy called Richard Garcia, his name was. He was very, very tall and handsome, and uh, I, I used to see him, if I go and see the Leather Boys or something like that, He'd be in the background dancing, you know. i said, that's why His name was, he used to call him Tito. I said, oh, there's Tito in the background. And he was always very smartly dressed. And so I met him in the street. I said, I saw you in the Leather Boys the other week. I said, I said are you an actor? He said, I'm, he said no, I'm an extra. I said, what's that? He says, I do crowd stuff. I said, how much do you get for that? And he said, five pounds a day. And I was getting five pounds a week. I thought that's for me. That's for me. I'll be an extra. So I, I, I you see, come along, and, and it was—I think it was called the Variety Artists Association or something—and I signed up and I gave them my my pound membership and a photograph, and I got called to an audition with him for Cleopatra with with um, Elizabeth Taylor and all that. When they were the first time around, they're doing, it. and we went we went down to Edgware Road to a big church hall, and we all stood in line while the guy went. You, not you, 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 you. Looking for centurions, just standing there. (laughs) So, um, so he came along. It was Tito. He went. You. I was next to him. He said, "Not you." (laughs) So, I couldn't get a job as an extra. Um, But he kind of, um, he was. He used to go to the theatre a bit, and he and he was quite interested in in in, in talking about about the business. um, Just from being an extra, I suppose, really. But he wasn't very interested in being an actor. Anyway. He said, "There's an uh, dra- uh, amateur dramatic group in Labrook Grove called Group One. Uh, why don't you go along and see them and see if you can do something?" I was quite good at drawing, and I thought, "Well, uh, maybe I can do something with designing or something like that." And it, um, so I went along. I, I just went along because Labrook Grove was quite close to Kilburn. If it had been in Kensington, I wouldn't have gone. <laughs> and um, so, so I went. I went along, and um, this guy um, said, oh, "Yes, now, I, uh, what can you do?" I said, I can't do anything. <laughs> he said, um, well, what are you good at? I said, I'm quite good at drawing. He said, um, okay, well, we're, we're casting a part in Arsenic and Old, not Arsenic and Old, it's in um, *Romanoff and Juliet, a, a Peter Ustinov play, and there was a character of a kind of, uh, an American character, I don't know, and um, so we, we said, well, you have to, you have to audition for this. So he he gave me this script and this page and I looked at it and I said, uh, I'd never ever spoken aloud, uh, you know, apart from my dad, shouting at my dad. And um, so I had a look at this and he said, it's American, can you do American? I I, I don't know. (laughs) And the only American actor I knew at that time was Marlon Brando, who I'd seen in somebody and said, oh, all American talk, talk talk like that, I suppose. So I started this appalling reading and I I looked up and I saw this guy go, God, know, and, um, so um, he said, um, well, uh, you can help us stage management. <laughs> so I joined the group, and um, I found it fascinating. Um, it was the first time, because if you've ever had the experience of watching even amateur actors, I say even, I don't mean that in a diminishing sense, but if you, if you, if you watch actors working on scripts, it's rather fascinating, you see them discussing a line, the detail that goes into trying to make a one sentence um, coherent and understandable. So I used to sit there, really, really fascinated by this. And There was another young guy in the group, his name was Shane Connerton, and um, he was an Irish guy, and he had a great sense of humour, and uh, he, he, he always had a book in his pocket. He was reading Emil Zola, I remember, he was reading a, a book called Earth by Emil Zola and um, I remember saying to him, Shane Connaughton, by the way, now, he, he's a very famous Irish playwright. He wrote and got nominated for a screenplay um, of My Left Foot, he wrote that, and he wrote Run of the Country and uh, The Playboys, so he's, he's a really, really, now, very, very established and marvellous Irish writer, and is my longest friend. Um, uh, anyway, so he's reading he read his book, and I said, he, he, I said well, is, it, well, is it any good? And he said, oh, it's what, brilliant, brilliant, why don't you read it? I said, no, I don't want to read that. And he said, why? I said, well, I don't, I don't fancy it. And he said, well, how do you know you don't fancy it if you haven't read it? Mm. Anyway, it was Earth by Emil Zola. He said, read it. So I went away and read it. And I thought, wow. I mean, apart from the fact that it had lots of sex in it, which I really <laughs> liked a lot. But, um, but, it, but it, it, it was about people, and it was about farms, and it was about the, it was about the Earth. And, uh, <coughs> and I thought, I, can, I, I could relate to it. it was, he was a very naturalistic. I suppose he was... He was the the French novelist version of Rodin you know he was it was muscular and and tangible and um and and I thought um wow and it, it a light bulb went off in my head, and then Shane bless him said you've got to you, if you are interested in acting, you've got to read and um so we chose a country and we'd choose France and we read. Victor Hugo and Dumas Poussin, and uh, Emile Zola and all that, and we discussed them. We created our own book group. If you, uh, are you, all get, are you all falling asleep? Here? This is interesting. Uh, i so, so, so. um, I've, I've sent many people to sleep in my life. Um, so, anyway, you're, so, you're, so you're what sort of age at this point? What late teens? I was sixteen. Or? Sixteen. I, mean, I was sixteen. So between the eight, from sixteen um, onwards, I just devoured mm-hmm. books. I, it just it was like it became an addiction, and so I read voraciously. from almost all my life now, but certainly, for the next 15 years, everything I could pick up, and I used to carry a dictionary with me, because I was so terrified of anything that had more than three syllables, and so, um, and that's due to shame, so he sort of educated me. Anyway, um, whilst this was happening, um, they were casting another play, which then they couldn't pass cast a character in *Arsenic and Old Lace* called Teddy Brewster, and Teddy Brewster is the old uncle who, who keeps going up the stairs saying "charge" and burying the dead bodies in the cellar, which is, he thinks is the Panama Canal. And anyway, so they, they said you'll have to play it, Peter. And uh, so I played it, and. I remember vividly the very first night in this school in, 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 in uh, Notting Hill Gate where we had our, gave our first performance. I was sitting, it was, a very, it was as intimate as this, and I was, I was here on stage with the two very experienced actresses who were playing the elder sisters in it, and I had, I had to offer them some biscuits, and I had a plate of biscuits, and my hand was like that, and it was shaking so much that all the biscuits fell off onto the floor. And so the first view of me by an audience was my backside picking up in, in <laughs> khaki shorts, picking up digestive biscuits and putting it, them on a plate, but, and the audience laughed at that, and then, on my first line, they laughed. So by the end of the end of the first act of the first performance I ever did, I was addicted to theater. <laughs> I thought, "This is magical, this is absolutely amazing." And it was also wonderful for someone like me who had very few and very little social skills um, and uh, if, to get that kind of response. It, it, it was wonderful. So, and so I got addicted to the narcotic of performing then. And,
0: uh, but talking about nerves, do you still get nervous now before you go on stage? Yeah, I do, yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, you yeah. get more nervous as you get older. Oh, now I get nervous. I think, am I going to remember that? or every evening you go on, there's always a cul-de-sac you, you find yourself into, particularly if you try to deliver fast. I, I try to deliver quite fast when I act on stage, and uh, uh, it's a terrible thing to do. It's better if you go slowly. You can always think about where you're going. <laughs> but uh, so often I find myself in a... I think, oh, God, what comes next? What happens next? Um, so, that, so from that point of view, it's just because of the grey matter, you get nervous. Um, but I've been nervous all of my life as an actor, because... Um, you want to be good. You want to do your best, and you want to uh, you want to do, you want to be exciting. All those things. And there is, a, I think, a valuable uh, nervous energy that one gets from constructive nerves. There are constructive nerves that drive you, and there are destructive nerves that stun you. And I've never, I've luckily, have never suffered from those. We're touching wood. Touching yeah. wood so yeah. far. In fact, I did. I did. I did a, a one a Beckett one-man show. Three years ago at the Edinburgh Festival for the Gate Theatre in in Dublin, it was uh, Love, uh, First Love by Samuel Beckett. It was a novella, mm-hmm. and I did it because I, I wanted to make sure my brain still absorbed. So I learned the novella. It took me four months to learn. It was an hour. It ended up as an hour monologue, and um, it, it took me yeah four months of daily sitting down every morning four hours break, four hours, um, and um, I say this apropos of nerves, and I can remember vividly, I was doing it in Edinburgh, um, Michael Gambon, in fact, was doing a play called A Joe, which was a 28-minute play in which he didn't say a word, but Penny Wilton, who was brilliant, in a voiceover, ask him questions about his past and how he had been so destructive. So she was, hey, Joe, you remember this? Do you remember this to you, Joe? And you'd see Michael Gambon. And he has his most wonderful face. So you're transfixed by the journey that the play takes you just through his face. And I was thinking, you lucky son. You've got, you've got, I'm doing, doing it all with your face and a voiceover. I'm gonna go on in a minute and speak for an hour. And um, so, so um, anyway, I remember vividly having watched him and I thought he was magnificent. He's a magnificent actor and a great, has something wonderful. God touched him in the right place and he he's, has uh, wonderful qualities. Um, so, anyway, what I remember, this is my vivid memory in terms of nerves. I was, uh, the play opened, the audience here, I put my back to the audience, and I, and I looked at what was the house, as it was projected on a screen, the house that I'd been kicked out of. This is a story about a man who f- is kicked out of his father's home, goes to sleep on the be- park bench, and he falls in love with a prostitute. And it's, it's a magical... If, if you haven't read it and you like Beckett, First Love, I recommend it. It's a great, great book. And it's a very quick. It's not a big read. Um, anyway, so and I remember standing there, and, I, and what I was, to, what I did was I looked at the house, turned around, and started talking to the audience. And I stood there, and I was, and I was looking at the house, and at the nape of my neck, I felt a sweat bead go all the way down my spine and hit my coccyx like that. And I thought if I have a heart attack now, I won't have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that's my... Uh, I, 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 I could feel physically the heat of nerves. I, I got through the first night, and then I got to enjoy it. I only did a week's performances. It was only a week, I think, up there. On the last night, um, I finished my show at 9 o'clock, and I remember when I left the theatre, I could feel my shoulders drop about a foot. I must have been like that all week. You know, but my shoulders dropped, and I also I thought I'm going to burst into tears. I thought I was going to cry because the sense of relief about having done it was so profound. Um, I was more nervous than I realised. But it was. A mag- mag- but what was great about doing that was that that it, it taught me that with that I can still learn enough if I. Give it enough time,
0: yeah. and that intensity of—I mean, the, the the memory obviously is is a feat of memory. But how do you do it? Is it like trigger? it just you start it, and it sort of some, somehow mechanically just falls into place, or what? What? What's if, if I'm technique? working
1: on a part in a play, and it's in a it's a, a scene, a duologue, uh, or whatever, um, the only way I can remember it is by what I'm trying to do to my partner. What am I trying to say to the person I'm talking to? Um, I mean, you go. Uh, uh, one of the great things about acting is that it teaches you a lot about um, human beings. You become, you become like a, th- a, 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 a therapy detective, you know, in a strange way. You're looking for clues all the time about why, you, what is this character, what, what do other people say of him, um, what does he say of himself, what is the truth, what are lies, um, what is my job, what are the, what are the um, the uh, demands, the playwright has given me, what do I have to do to serve him and tell his story best? So I, I, do, I do that kind of mapping um, when I'm reading a play to try and find out what the tone of my character is within the symphony, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, so having done that, I then try, to start learning once we start rehearsing, but nowadays I try to kind of familiarize myself enough when I was young, I never tried to learn anything. I just learned it in rehearsals. You find you just do it, don't you? There comes a point where you put the book you put the book down because you have learned it. Now you never do that. I, I keep the book until the, <laughs> we have the first the first run through, and the director often says, "Are you going to put the book down ever?" Peter, <laughs> yeah, on the first night, yeah. Um, so, so, but the the, made, the most important thing for me as an actor is to know what I am doing to my part. Um, and that's how I learn. I, that's how I, 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 I. It's a sense memory, and it's a direct contact memory with whoever I'm working with. Going back to when you did Ask an Old lace,
0: what, what was the first production when you actually generally felt like an actor for the first time? You'd actually cracked it.
1: I think when I finished that one-man show, in, you know, <laughs> just three, just three years ago. <laughs> um, Michael Redgrave used to say it takes you ten years to be an to become an actor. Um, I don't think I've ever felt that really. Um, I felt that I've done some things that I think yes I got as much as I could out out of that. Um, I stopped trying to think. It's a funny old business acting because you know what we're doing is is. is Getting people to suspend their disbelief and to believe that we are the person we are saying we are when we actually appear on the stage in that place. So, uh, some people say we, we, we are making lies the truth, or we are we are giving another truth to the truth, whatever it is you're doing. So, um, I'm not trying to avoid what you're saying. I just I, I, I you try are on you you're a, a, a little bit, yes, <laughs> beca- beca- because. If you think about things in a concept of acting, you then think about things that you are performing. And I've always tried, um, it may not be apparent with my work, but I've always tried to be as truthful and as honest and as unlike an actor um, as I can be. But then that may be due to the fact, as I was saying earlier in the conversation, that I I came into this business on the cusp of the end of um, the polite, Form of acting as Osborne, who I loved, um, what, what he did with Look Back in Anger in 1956 was to take the politeness out of acting and to, to, to bring British theatre kicking and struggling into the 20th century. They'd already done it in America with Tennessee Williams and, and uh, Arthur, what's his name? Um, Miller. Miller. And thanks. The memory, see, and, um, so and we were always generally are uh, 10 years behind America anyway, but we certainly were in terms of uh, our theater. And it was the 50s, not I was 10 in 1956, I was born in 1946. I was, I was my parents' last celebration after the Second World War, and um, I think it was their last one anyway. Um, so, um, so I was 10 when that happened, but I, the, one of the first things I ever saw in the theater was Look Back in Anger, so it's always been a very, very Important play to me, and and, um, and strangely enough, this is linked to your question about acting. Um, I remember, I remember when I was doing when I was in the machine shop making nuts and bolts. I remember seeing Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. Albert Finney was playing this. He was playing a lathe operator. He was being being paid piece money, and I thought, and I saw it, and I thought, that's what I do for a living. And I thought that's extraordinary that there's a story about a working class man making nuts and bolts, and he's paid the same way as I'm paid. And that was a very kind of um, extraordinary kind of um, crossover, if if you know what I mean. And so I I was always very, very attracted to the non-performing element of acting. Although, strangely enough, I've been cast a lot in the performing element of acting, if you see what I mean. So where it relates back to what you're saying about um, when did you think of yourself as being an actor or getting over all those things, I've never had that, I've never felt that. I've felt that I've done elaborate work or I've done simple work or I've done bad work. i felt all those things, but I've never felt, oh, I am an actor now. I suppose in terms of the public... Long way getting around to that, wasn't I know. Yeah, <laughs> I want to ask <laughs> that question again. Sorry, sorry, um, I've, n- I've never felt that <laughs> long, and that would have been over, wouldn't it?
0: But in terms of public recognition, I suppose your breakthrough was on television in, in um, Big Breadwinner Hog, wasn't it? Did was, was you well, think Well
1: to, to, to a certain strata of society, I suppose, Big Breadwinner Hog. for those of you who have not seen it, it was 1968, I was 22, and it was, um, the, it was a, a, an, an extraordinary piece of television drama. When, in those days, what we had on television was The Saint, um, and when people were hit with chairs, the chair would break, and our hero would shrug it off, and then come back for more, you know, and it was, if someone hit you with a chair, you'd bleed a lot and fall over, and probably cry. Um, so, the whole essence of, of, of Hog, directed by Mike Newell, and Michael Apted, and written by Robin Chapman they were kind of, it was their two directors first jobs, and Robin Chapman was already at that time a very, very um, in vogue writer. But what they wanted to do was to shake up this whole element of uh, violence on the screen, particularly on television, so that uh, if someone was hurt, you were aware that they were hurt, and they really brutally described that in one scene where I had to throw acid in someone 's face and they actually held on the actor, Barry Lyndon, his name was, and he responded very well to the water I threw on his face, <laughs> like that, but then they devised a very clever way of making his face look like it melted on the screen. Well, of course, I mean, that was discussed in the House of Commons, this is, and I became this character, Hogg, who was inciting... They said, we should sue Peter Egan for treason. He's inciting the youth of England to violence. And it was actually discussed in House Commons' this series. It was amazing. Um, but of course, it was very good from my point of view because I became quite famous because of it. Um, so that, was, that introduced me to a cult kind of audience, if you, if you know what I mean. Um, and then I found myself being offered things like Man of Violence and stuff like that, all kinds of stuff. I thought, oh, geez, this is right. Is, is I just get enough of this at home. <laughs> so um, I didn't want to be kind of typed by that particular kind of role. Uh, so, uh, now it's kind of gone in a full circle, and the, and and it's sort of been revived as a kind of cult thing now because of the internet. Um, and it, it doesn't look violent, strangely enough. Now.
0: Well, it's on it's on DVD. You can buy the whole series, penny, and, yeah. and it's an amazing piece of television. I agree. Really yes, coffee. you get, <laughs> get another bottle of beer after this. Um, but it is. I, mean, I wish <laughs> it stands out really well. I don't know if you've seen it um, recently no, I, at I, all, but I, I haven't seen it, no. It
1: really is an amazing piece of television. Oh, good, that's but marvelous. Yeah. Well, in fact, they did use it for a long period of time as an example of how to make kind of, you know, in the 60s, like cinema verite, you know, kind of, but how to make realistic TV stuff. So, so that was great. But, then, but having, having had the experience of that, and having had the experience of being offered the man of violence and the killer and all that kind of stuff, and thinking, I can't do this for the rest of my life, I went off and played Romeo in, uh, in, in, in Cheltenham, and, uh, and then uh, and I, played, and I played Hamlet, and then I got asked to join the, R- the RSC. So um, it, m- my career has always gone off in tangents, you know, really. I, you know, it, 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 I've always been regarded as a rather eclectic actor, which I like very much. Um, and um, I, I, I was, in fact, I did one film... <laughs> not long after that, called One Brief Summer, directed by John McKenzie. I don't know if of you knew, he's now dead. He, he directed my, The Long Good Friday, John Mackenzie, Does that mean anything to anyone? Um, it was a, um, a fascinating, Long Good Friday was a fascinating film. The film I did wasn't. It was called One, uh, um, One Long Summer, I think. And uh, I was played this character who was supposed to ride a horse like a jockey. Um, he ran a stud farm, could dive like um, Mark Spitz and uh, swim like Mark Spitz. And, mm-hmm and drive like, well, Sterling Moss in those days, and, uh, and in those days your, your, your agent said to you, you know, whatever they ask you to do, say you can do it. So uh, I saw John McKenzie, and he said, uh, yeah, I, I, and he'd seen me in uh, Hog, that was the link, he'd seen me in Hog, and so he wanted me to play this character, and he said, Peter, um, uh, he hey, can you drive? And I, I had three driving lessons at this point, and I said, yeah, of course I can drive. He said, uh, hey, can you swim? And uh, I couldn't swim at all. I, in fact, I, was really, I got rheumatic fever as a kid, and I wasn't allowed to swim for all, said, all my teenage years. And uh, I could swim well when I was seven, but I couldn't swim well at t- uh, uh, I was 22. He said, can you dive? I said, sure, sure, I can dive. He said, okay. He said, now, tell me the truth, Peter. He said, can you ride a horse? And I had at Chichester Festival Theatre where I had my first job. I'd been out. On horses, and you know, because it was the first time... That was the first time... I, when I went to Chichester in 1966, it was the first time I'd ever let, left London. Another vivid memory, just to kind of tangent a bit for a second. When I... When I, I remember that the, the first day I left London, went to Chichester, I was in Burdham, just on the coast, near, near the Witterings, and I came out of my digs, because I could only afford to stay in the boathouse of this woman's house, and so I couldn't stay in the main house. I got a cheap little thing in the shed which I stayed in for a week because of the spiders, but anyway. Um, I, I remember coming out, there's a wonderful actor called Michael Aldridge, you may remember, and um, he, was, he came out and had a cigarette on the doorstep. And I walked out and I went, ah! Oh! And he said, what's the matter, what's the matter, you silly boy? And I said, I said, what's that up there? He said, what's what, what's what? I said, that. And he said, well, it's the stars. It's the, con- it's the-, it's the constellation. I'd never, because living in London with all the lights and the smog and stuff, you couldn't see the sky. And I, I remember, my mouth dropped, I couldn't believe it. Anyway, that was one memory. Um, but the other memory was uh, strawberries and cream, and, and it, of course you were there, it's a very, very sort of sort of uh, equine, I suppose, uh, society. So every now and then someone who owned horses would invite you for a ride, you know, so I, <laughs> like old, old sack of potatoes me on a horse. Anyway, so I had a couple of rides, so I could then say to John McKenzie, he said to me, 'I'm tell me the truth, can you ride? I said, yeah, of course I could ride. And I couldn't do any of those things. But anyway, I tell you very, very quickly. Um, film the film. So I agreed to do the film. In fact, um, I got a very good deal on the film, and um, we did the first two weeks of interiors. So I kind of knew I was all right, because they wouldn't reshoot stuff. And, while the thing, the, I, and I had a sort of month to prepare myself, and so I got my stand-in, who was a very good diver and a very good swimmer. I, I said, teach me how to swim. So we went to the Swiss Scottish swimming baths, and you know, I was in a, paddling away. In the swimming, and he'd be in the water like that, you know, so he was wonderful. And, um, so I could just about stay afloat in the water, and... Um, I have to say now I'm a very good swimmer, but then I was terrible. Um, so uh, I felt maybe I could get away with the swimming. Uh, diving was always a painful experience. Uh, riding the horse I didn't even want to think about, and I had driving lessons in an old Ford Fiesta. Um, so I thought, I, at least I can start the engine. There was nothing too dangerous, I can drive the car. So, I, so uh, the two weeks filming, and um, we get up to the so he said, and "Tomorrow we're doing the swimming sequence." So I said, "Oh right, okay." And uh, so in the morning we arrived at um, uh, a gravel pit in Hendon, and it was very dark and misty. The water was dark and murky, and you couldn't see the other side of the bank. And uh, Mackenzie said, "Now, right, Peter, what I want you to do is, I want you to dive in there. I want you to swim around because the girl's going to come in over there, and I want you to see the girl." And I, you're doing a bit of, you know, bit of bit of macho, bit of bit of stud acting, OK? I said, oh. I said, how deep is it? And he said, what do you mean, how deep is it? I said, well, uh, how deep is it out there? And he said, you don't care about how deep it is. I said, I do, I do, yes. He said, <laughs> he said, I, I, said well, I said, where's the water keeper? <laughs> and they had the, the caretaker, I so he came in. I said, um, uh, excuse me, I said, how deep is it out there? He said, well, it, it just falls away very suddenly, and it's about 50 feet deep out there. He said, but, uh, so I said to Mackenzie, what was it you wanted me to do again? He said, oh, no, I said, I can't do that. He said, what do you mean you can't do that? I said, I'll drown. I said, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Um, so he said, you can't do that? I said, no, I can't. I'm sorry, I can't do it. You have to sack me. So he couldn't sack me. So um, he said, OK, what are we going to do? So I, it's funny that my, my stand-in was a man called Alan Bennett, not the great Alan Bennett, but Alan Bennett, his name was. So I said, Alan, he's a good swimmer. And he said, well, how can... he?" Said, I said, well, shoot a distance with Alan. So what happened? I talked to Mackenzie, it was rather difficult to talk John Mackenzie into anything. I talked him into doing the swimming bits, sort of with me, as it were, in the the water, in the deep end. Um, And and I got Alan to do the dive as well. And Mackenzie accepted all that, which was great. He said, OK, Peter, he said, "Um, now we have a difficult shot, which is you in the middle of this uh, gravel pit, and we see the the, the the girl dive in, and we want to see you look at the girl and swim in her direction. How am I gonna do that?" So I thought about it, and I said, um, get a rubber ring. He said, what? I said, get a rubber ring. He said, get a, I said, get a rubber ring, put me in the middle of the thing, I will pr- depress the ring, push it down, so that my head is in the water, and then when you say action, I'll incline towards her, and you got the shot, yeah? You get me in profile. He said, all right, smart ass, okay. So, so we get in there, we get, uh, get to the point. Of, uh, so he said, okay, coming up, Peter, are you ready, Felicity? Felicity Gibson was the girl on the line. He said, you ready, Felicity? Felicity was ready to dive. She looked gorgeous, she was wonderful. She was there on the bank. And so he said, as he said, action, I let go of the ring, yeah? So he said, okay, ready, Peter? I said, yeah, action. I let go of the ring. Of course, the ring was bottom heavy, and it went bloop, like that, came up. So uh, my legs came up into, uh, onto the surface like two wilting daffodils <laughs> at the side of the sink. And you see the girl in the distance diving between my legs, which is a rather <laughs> wonderful <laughs> shot. <laughs> I'm drowning underneath. Um, anyway, gosh, so, I've never, <laughs> never seen this film. I must, there are more I must terrible stories than that. I'll, go, that's, I'll leave
0: it. Is that probably the, the worst filming experience of your life? The worst of it? my life. Yes, it was
1: the worst filming, most embarrassing. And the, what was wonderful at, at the end of it was Mackenzie was very, very generous to me. It was a terrible film and anyway. it was a very boring film. But um, he said, he said, you taught me one lesson, Peter. He said, I will never ever believe an actor again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's the point, though, isn't it? It's all about lying. Yeah. So, and, and you mentioned uh, earlier on that you've played lots of dukes and lords, etc. And one of the great films you were involved with, of course, was Chariots of Fire. How did oh, yes, that come sir. about? Uh, that was Hugh Hudson,
1: yeah. Um, well, that was just a, a marvellous experience. I mean, it's a, again, it's a kind of... <laughs> I call it a small part. They called it a cameo. And, um, but it was wonderful to be a part of that film, because, I mean, it, it was just magical. I mean, I remember when we went to see the, um, the cast showing of the film, and... Um, Nobody had great confidence in the script, strangely enough. I mean, Hugh Hudson, who was the director, who was very much a visual director, um, he said, you know, really, you can say what you like. Um, he said, because he didn't like the script. He liked the story, but he didn't like the script very much, and uh, it was Colin Welland who sadly died this year, didn't he, or last year, and got an Oscar for it, and almost destroyed the British film industry by saying on the, when he received the Oscar in Hollywood, watch out, the Brits are coming. And that destroyed the English film business for about ten years. Tumbleweed for ten years. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> tumbleweed for ten years. It was dreadful. But anyway, um, but uh, I remember vividly in, in the Haymarket here seeing the very first crew showing of the film, and when they when it started with that run on the beach and that evangelist music, I thought this is a hit. We got nothing to do with my small contribution to the film, um, but it was mag- it was magical. It was magnificent. A great, great film, and uh, Ian Charlson I thought was wonderful isn't it. It was a, a very, very, very beautiful and well-made film. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yes, I was the Duke of Sutherland. Yeah. One of my many dukes.
0: And also, you mentioned about playing artists and and uh, and performers. I mean, you were uh, Oscar Wilde, Oscar Wilde at Italy, one point, yeah, which yeah. Uh, yeah which is yeah. Uh, a part to, to sink your teeth into.
1: Well, it was. I never thought much of that either, to tell you the truth, because um, I tell you know I got that job. I was. Um, it, it was in the year that the tax man was going to make me bankrupt. Okay. Because in those days, i you know, you earned. I spent every penny I earned, and um, so uh, and, and suddenly I found that I hit a brick wall, I was 29, and um, I, I, the taxman called me and he said, you owe me a huge amount of money, which I did, and um, he said, "He said, how, are you, how are you gonna pay it back? I said, well, i have to wait until I get a job, and, I, and I'd just gone through having, uh, in 1966 to 1975, I worked wall to wall, you know, I didn't, I, I, I did a, A theater play, a television series, a film. I won a a BAFTA award for most promising newcomer to films and didn't get offered a film for seven years after that. And I I threw the award away. (laughs) So so I thought, this is an act of life. um, I did a play in the West End, I did a television series, I did a film. I did a film um, with with Richard Johnson called Hennessy and uh, and Rod Steiger. Um, So I did a film a year, a television series a year, and a play in the theater. And then suddenly when I was 29, it was like someone shut a door. And I suddenly wasn't being offered any work. Was
0: there a at reason all. for that? Did you, did you work out, or just uh,
1: I think the reason for it was that I had decided, on the one hand, that I wanted to move in a different direction again. I didn't want to carry on doing the kind of work I'd been doing. I'd, by that point, I'd played Millie in the in the Love School, which was a very successful series, and I I was always playing kind of foppish kind of characters, and. Um, which was a strange, you know, kind of change from playing the villains, the hard villains. And the in Prince it, Regent uh, uh, came along as all that Prince sort of Prince Regent came it? along a little bit later. That came on just after uh, okay. Oscar Wilde, the Prince Regent. But, um, so anyway, so I'd had this, and i just bought a house with my wife, Myra, in, in Chiswick, and, and I was up to my eyes in debt. Anyway, the, um, the taxman called me in and, and, and said, uh, you, you, I think I owed him £10,000, which in those days was a fortune, and, uh, and nowadays it's a fortune, but then it was a terrifying amount of money. You could buy a house for, for £10,000. And um, I had I been offered one job, two jobs, sorry, uh, one at the Young Vic to do a season um, with the Prospect Theatre Company, which was there, um, to do Double Dealer and something else. And I'd also been asked to do Travesties up in New Yorkshire, in the Crucible Theatre in New Yorkshire, to play Henry Carr, which is that great Tom Stoppard play, a marvellous part. And I, I remember I was being offered £90 a week to do that, or £150 a week to go to the young Vic, the old Vic. So I, I said to that, I've got these two jobs. And, and he said, Well, of course, you're going to go to the old Vic and, and get. 100. I said, No, no, I'm not going to Sheffield. And he said, well, you, you, But that's £60 a week less than the other job. And I said, Well, yes, but I'm, I really want to play this part. And he said, um, I've been told that actors are idiots, and now having met you, I know they are. And he said, because any sensible person will accept, the, you know more money to us. Anyway, so I went up to do, the ju- to, to do Travesties, and he said, okay, he said, you're opening Travesties in March, he said, so I want from you, by the end of May, a 1,000 pounds, and uh, I said, well, what, I haven't got it. He said, "Well, you have a house? I said, yes, he said, well, the first thing we do is we come to your house and we value all your goods, and, and then we take a 1,000 pounds worth of that, and then if, if you can't pay off, we sell your house for you and uh, you find somewhere else to live. Anyway, so, um, uh, so, so I go up there thinking, well, how am I gonna solve this one? And um, while I was up there, my agent rang me and said, do you fancy playing Oscar Wilde in Lily? And I said, well, that's, that's cast, isn't it? And I said, I think, Hal Bennett was cast in it. Remember Hal yeah, Bennett? Of course. Yeah, don't even remember Hal Bennett. He played um, Shelley and things like that. Very, very good actor, and uh, he was a huge star in the early 70s, Hal Bennett. Anyway, he'd recorded one episode of it, and um, mm-hmm. it hadn't worked. They didn't like the chemistry in it. Yeah. So um, they said, that they, that they, that he's not doing it anymore um, and they'd like you to do it. And uh, so I said, how much are they paying? <laughs> and so I accepted it, really, uh, just for the money. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, that sounds a bit of a kind of callous thing to say now. But, I mean, I obviously, if it had been terrible, I wouldn't have done it. But um, but the most important thing was paying the tax man. So, um, and while I was doing it, I thought it was a bit woman's own, you know, Lily. I thought, I thought it was a bit mushy, really. It's not the kind of thing I really like very much. But then I started to look into Oscar Wilde and read a lot about Oscar Wilde, and I found him fascinating. So that, like working with Richard and Ever-Decreasing Circles, click that. Oscar Wilde, the real Oscar Wilde, made um, Oscar Wilde and Lily work for me. But Had and you read Oscar Wilde before? I'd read, all, I'd read yeah. him, but I hadn't studied him. Okay. I hadn't, hadn't realised what a fascinating... Uh, human being he was uh, amazingly enough Oscar Wilde and John Osborne are the two most written about writers of the 20th century Um, and uh, uh, that's why perhaps I Accepted, which I may tell you about later, a you time, why I accepted Osborne's last play, which was a deja vu. Mm. But anyway, so, so, so I did Lily, and, and in fact, if one looks at Lily now, it looks really rather wonderful because it's a huge cast, wonderful cast. Francesca Annis was wonderful as Lily, I thought. My very, very old and close friend, Anton Rogers, um, who is now dead, sadly, was great as her husband, um, Edward. Um, but, but I thought, as a series, I thought it was a bit mushy, to tell you the truth. I mean,
0: uh, things have got worse on TV, though. I suppose, haven't got they? Worse. In terms of, well, in terms of some, some of the costume dramas, maybe have, have got mushier than that. So, I mean, there's a quality to those seventies and eighties. uh programs. I like, yeah. the, the, the,
1: I liked very much. I did a thing, a thing, a series after that called The Prince Regent about the regency of George the Fourth, which I really loved. I thought that was great stuff. It was a wonderful.
0: So was it mushy part. in terms of, of the writing? You weren't very impressed with Lily. Just, yes,
1: the writing was. Yeah. I thought it was a bit, I thought it was. I just thought it was a bit woman's ownish, really. Mike, but uh, but Prince Regent I think was much more powerful as a series. Um, but, well, what happened I think in terms of our ability to produce great quality drama? We've gone back to it now, but in the late 80s, 89 or something, Margaret Thatcher took the quality threshold out of uh, broadcasting. So uh, in in the late 80s, anyone familiar with our business, I mean, there were five areas, and people had to bid for a franchise to. To produce television in that area, and within your bid, you would bid say 45 million pounds per year for 13 years to have the right to produce television in the Grampian area, or London Weekend, or uh, Yorkshire. You know, um, but within that your bid, you had to have a quality uh, threshold, which meant you would do so much classical educational work that. Um, was your quality contribution to this amazing machine called television, which was a license to print money, as they would say in those days, and still is, if you're lucky. Um, But um, Margaret Thatcher, I believe, was convinced by people um, to take the quality threshold out and go for the highest bidder. And she did that, and that was the beginning of the end of our business in the... uh, 89-90. And then what happened was television became about cooking and reality TV and celebrity, get me out of here, and all of the cheapest kinds of television that you can imagine flooded the market. Um, But now it's changed again, and it's changed now, I think, because of the great work that's come out of America and out of HBO, which has been... HBO actually set the bar so high with... um, Six feet under and things like that—that yes. um, that we then relearned how to how to create and make. There's been, the a, there's been there's been a really refreshing revival of the single play certainly
0: isn't it. Yes, you there did there lots of those there. in the 60s yeah. still, and that's come back which is yeah. which is wonderful isn't it. Yeah, it's mean, smart.
1: That's yeah. what it's wonderful, it's wonderful for wonderful writers it's wonderful for actors. But of course if you're a businessman who was you know as a, as what has happened in, the, in I I, mean, I seem to remember you know in the in the early 90s the people who were running Granada uh, saying if someone mentions Brideshead revisited to me again or uh, Jewel in the Crown they're going to get the sack because that was, that was the benchmark for great television at that time, and these people who were running television, who were only interested in filling their pockets, didn't want to hear about that. Um, and, and of course, so the single play, I mean, we, we, people used to say, we, we, we don't have a film industry in England. We had a film industry, we make great, film, great films for television which we did from the 60s, late 60s, right the way through until the end of the 80s. We were making great single, you know, um, film on four and BBC films and stuff like that, producing great, great work on television. Um, that all just got destroyed for about 15 years. But that started again. But it started because, um, because I suppose, HBO, which is a non-commercial subscription channel in America, um, got great writers in and said we want to produce great, film on television and 6 feet under started yeah but
0: but intelligently written and also popular too so totally, so yeah. so both elements are yeah, pleased marvelous. aren't
1: they? M- magnificent acting mag- and directing and then the sopranos and and the uh, West Wing and all those West things. West Wing, yeah. all that, yeah. 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 The Wire, you know, magnificent, magnificent
0: television. The level has been raised. It's sure hugely,
1: yeah. and, we're, and we are following through now. I mean, there's, there's, we've done some magnificent work in the last ten years, I think.
0: Well, listen, Peter, I could talk to you all day, and I'm going to after this, but um, it's getting to the time when we've got to almost close the show. But any questions from the audience at all before we all go to the bar?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to make it just say a few words, if I may, um, about something. Um, You may have gathered, even though uh, I'm quite passionate about the work I do and I'm quite committed to it, but the major passion I have in my life now is animal welfare. And I spend as much of my life trying to make the lives of animals better, as I do trying to make my acting better. (laughs) And uh, and I'm deeply, deeply committed and passionate about moon bears. Uh, Moon bears, if you haven't heard of them, they're bears um, that are kept in cages in China and they're kept in cages sometimes for up to 30 years. It's a horrific life they have. You can imagine a huge bear kept in a cage it can't turn around in, and it has its bile extracted daily from its gallbladder in the most horrendous and painful way. Um, they have their teeth cut with, um, when they're young, just pulled out, so as they can't, and, their, and their, 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 their nails pulled out so as they will not in any way hurt the person who is extracting the bile. Um, they have the most horrendous time. I don't know if this stays on as part of my my, portfolio. I was going to talk to you
0: about, about, because obviously you've just been doing Downton Abbey, and Mm -hmm. and as part of that character, you know, your veganism and and your sort of um, anti cruelty to animals
1: was very much part of that performance, wasn't it? Indeed it it was, yes. Uh, It it certainly was. Um, uh, uh, And um, uh, uh, I believe, you know, um, uh, that we have, inadvertently, in some instances, waged war on animals on this planet. In every species on this planet is treated badly by humans, um, and particularly when it is specifically directed, like with bio farms. Um, so there are something in the region of 14,000 bears in China at the moment who are imprisoned when they should be in the wild. Um, they have the most horrendous lives. But there was a great charity that I'm an ambassador for, which is why I'm mentioning it to you now, uh, called Animals Asia, run by a brilliant, one of the most inspiring people I've ever met, Jill Robinson. I'm going to, um, to China uh, next month for the second time to one, see my bear, Peter Bear, and to make a film with Jill about her work and her life. Um, if any of you are, are unaware of it, please you know, look them up, Animals Asia, just Google them, uh, or Animals Asia, uh, uh, Moon Bears on YouTube, you'll see the most fantastic work happening, and you'll see the most wonderful creatures in this sanctuary, um, and it, 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 my passion and commitment also to animal welfare um, has led me to become a vegan, um, I, I don't eat or wear animals, and, I don't, and I'm totally uh, against them being used for entertainment or sport. Or... The only way we can use animals is by respecting them and having domesticated animals in our lives, like dogs and cats. Um, so it's a, a major, major passion, and in fact, it, it has made sense to me of my life as an actor to have reached a certain, however smaller degree of celebrity, to be able to use that to share the passion I have um, for... Uh, for for the creatures on our planet and uh, to open doors for various charities which is what I spend every single moment of my spare time doing. And um, so if you get a chance and you're interested, um, do look them up, Animals Asia in particular. Um, and there's also, as you may or may not know, there is a terrible thing called the dog meat trade in Korea. Um, there's a wonderful charity called Change for Animals Foundation. I'm also an ambassador for them. Well, Headed up by a woman called Lola Weber, and um, they're closing down dog meat farms in South Korea at the moment. About between 25 and 50 million dogs a year are butchered for the table in Asia, and it's a disgusting life for them. Um, And there's an e-petition going around at the moment that I'm supporting to get it discussed in the House of Commons.
0: Thank you for Peter. I I appreciate, and also they can follow you on Twitter, which is uh, uh, a a, a good platform for that. Yes, yes. And please thank Mr. Peter Egan for me. Thank you.
1: Yes. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded live in front of an audience at the Museum of Comedy Bloomsbury, London. Museumofcomedy.com